Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. So hello, everyone. My name is Mariah. I'll be your host today. Um, Thanks for listening to Inside the Boards. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Ronald Epstein. He's a very well-renowned physician, writer, researcher, and educator. And he has written over 300 scholarly articles, as well as his book, Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity, which shows how health professionals can optimize the care they provide and become more resilient while building strong connections with patients and their colleagues. Dr. Epstein co-directs the Center for Communication and Disparities Research and Mindful Practice in Medicine programs at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry, where he is professor of family medicine, oncology, and medicine palliative care. A graduate of Wesleyan University and Harvard Medical School, he is a recipient of numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards relating to communication and humanism, a Fulbright Fellowship in Barcelona, fellowships at the University of Sydney and the Brochure Foundation in Geneva, and the American Cancer Society's highest award, the Clinical Research Professorship. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Epstein. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much. So just a little bit about uh, my experience with your book. When I first got into medical school, I had bought your book from a Barnes and Nobles at my university, and I have read it several times since then and given it away to multiple people. And, you know, after the pandemic hit, it sort of came back and became a little more relevant to me personally, because of how many physicians that I had seen gotten, um, had gotten burnt out. So I wanted to do this podcast specifically with you since you had written about your experience in this field and ways to sort of cope with this kind of physician burnout in different ways, including being mindful. Um, And so today we have a few things to discuss with you. Firstly, if you'd like to start out with discussing what it means to be mindful. Well, thank you. And I, I guess I want to expand the discussion beyond just mindfulness and burnout to really think about what's going to make you flourish as a clinician. What's going to make you be able to practice in the way that you imagine that you'd like to be taken care of if you yourself were a patient? And, and also how to derive the greatest degree of satisfaction from your career recognizing, of course, that we work in an extremely imperfect world and, and the world of medicine is, is, is a pretty troubled one. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. So for me, uh, being mindful really involves being attentive, being curious, being present, and having what's called a beginner's mind, the ability to see uh, familiar situations with new eyes. And how you acquire those skills, there, there are many ways that you can, but I, I think that those are things that, are, that we can all teach and learn. And mindfulness involves finding these little pauses during our day during which we can decide uh, in an informed and responsive way how we want to parse our energies, where we want to focus our attention, uh, what kinds of issues really demand our presence. And those are all little choices that we make every moment of every day. I mean, a patient presents you with five symptoms, you have to figure out where to start. Or you have uh, a choice of, of where to focus your energies between various different patient demands and demands of your, of your school. And you're making these, what I would call microethical choices. And better to have those be conscious and aware 
and consistent with your values and belief system than to just be on autopilot. So for me, that's what mindfulness in clinical practice is. It's a way of being aware, of regulating your awareness, regulating your attention, so you can really be the person that you want to be to be the doctor you want to be. Absolutely. And, you know, in this day and age, especially when we have technology at the tips of our fingers and we have so many other things going on, I find it to be a lot harder than I would have presumed it to be. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of practice. I've, I've read in your book multiple times that some aspects of it do take practice. And you even mentioned really great articles that talk about how practicing enough mindfulness will actually change, you know, the composition of your genes, which is, which is pretty impressive. So could you talk to us about some ways that um, a person could be more mindful in this field? Okay. I just want to insert a little corrective. It doesn't really alter the composition of your genes. It can alter the expression of your genes. So for example, uh, if, if you practice certain kinds of mindfulness practices like meditation, for example, you'll express more, you'll, you'll actually create more dopamine receptors in your brain and dopamine, as you know, is involved in reward circuits. So, so it's, it's kind of an interesting and, uh, idea from a neuroscientific standpoint. But the way I like to think of it is really in a, in a pragmatic standpoint. That is, what can you do when you're there on the wards in the hospital and the clinic, uh, you know, studying for a test, whatever it is that you're spending your time doing, how can you do that in a way that that's more attentive and curious and present and, and the beginner's mind? So just really little things that you can do when you're in the hospital or in the clinic. For example, what do you do between patients? You know, what do you do to uh, prepare yourself for the next encounter that you're going to have with a patient? You've just finished up with someone and you don't want to carry in all the baggage from that previous patient. You want to make, you want to be aware of the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings uh, that are, that are with you. Uh, and maybe take a breath when you touch the doorknob. And in that breath, making some kind of choice about what you want to be carrying with you in the front of your mind. And what can actually be relegated more to the back of your mind? What things you can you want to hold on to? What things you want to let go of? And so, you know, that, that's kind of a simple thing to do. And if you do it every day with, you know, let's say you see five patients in a day um, and you practice that five times and it's five times a week, that's 25 times. And over a year, you know, that ends up being a lot of times. It, it ends up being maybe a thousand times or 2,000 times. And anything that you practice a couple thousand times, you begin to get good at. So this capacity of just pausing for a moment, taking a mindful moment, if you want to call it that. But I just prefer to just say it's a, it's a pause. It's a, it's, it's, and in fact, I, I just saw a video of a, of a surgeon, well-known neurosurgeon, who does this as a ritual with his team in the beginning of every operation, that they all have besides you know doing a safety check and make, making sure they're operating on the right side of the body and whatever, uh, they also have a mindfulness moment. And that's really part of their checklist. They really spend maybe half a minute in silence just uh, being aware of their physical, mental, and emotional state. And the feeling is, is that allows them to do their job better, to work better as a team. Absolutely. Um, and that sounds very doable, you know, when, when we hear it, when we read it. I know on the floors and in person, it's a little more difficult because we forget a lot. But like you said, it's, it takes practice. Um, and I've been yeah. trying to implement. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, and and I I I want to say that the word mindfulness derives from a word in the Pali language that literally means remembering. And remembering what? You know, remembering the most important thing. What's the most important thing right now? So part of the challenge is not that you don't know what to do and you don't know how to be mindful, but part of the challenge is remembering to bring that naturally occurring capacity for mindfulness into moments when it really matters. And you were going to say something. I'm sorry to have interrupted. No, it's fine. I was going to mention that exactly. You know, at times it's very easy to forget to, to be mindful. I think, especially in the beginning, I've been trying to implement this into my life. And you mentioned a few other things in your book, like trying to picture, asking yourself the question of where are my feet, using that as a way to sort of ground yourself when you feel like you could use a moment of mindfulness or, I mean, a moment of like a pause or of trying to be more present. And, you know, trying to add these things in my daily routine are, are quite, they're easy to add, but they're hard to remember to add, if that makes sense. They're easy to do. It takes, you know, 10, 15 seconds, but with my, you know, with our schedules as med students or as, you know, physicians, it's sometimes easy to forget, but just like you said, you know, it takes practice and doing it, remembering to do it after you see each patient is probably one of the best ways to remember to continue being mindful. And another thing I, I read also, um, it was about how being mindful and meditative is not, it's not about um, doing it to be like Buddhist. It doesn't have to do with specifically Buddhism, but you can practice it regardless of what religion or what country you're from or wherever you're from. There was this thing I read about how it's not not particular to one religion or anything. And like, if you, if you do it, regardless of what you're, what you practice, it won't change who you are. It'll just add this feeling of being more present. If that makes sense. Uh, Yeah. You know, let me just build on that a little bit. The the practices that I'm talking about are really pretty pragmatic. I mean, stopping and pausing. On the other hand, any activity in which you reflect on what's important to you and what's important to the world you know, has to have an ethical, a moral, and possibly a spiritual component to it, right? Because we are complex beings. We're physical beings. We're emotional beings. We're social beings. uh, And we're spiritual beings. And I think that that medical education and practice has always recognized that in some way. You know, it's, you you go back to Hippocrates and even before, and and that idea that we're that of what you, what the human experience is, you know, it's different parts of that have been elaborated in different ways over the centuries. And I guess this is part of a little bit of the confusion with the popularization of mindfulness. When I was a medical student, it was a word that really wasn't known in society and also in medicine. You know, the the whole mindfulness movement really started in the late seventies, early nineteen eighties, and even then, it didn't get terribly popularized in the mainstream media until the 1990s. So it's a relatively recent thing. And uh, yes, some of the meditative practices that are associated with mindfulness do derive from a variety of spiritual traditions, from Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, um, uh, Hinduism. I mean, really, most religions have a contemplative side to them. But the way that they're implemented in terms of training healthcare professionals or helping patients with chronic symptoms, then it becomes really a secular enterprise. It really becomes something that is is about you as a total human being and not necessarily uh, something that's affiliated with a particular belief system. 
So I think that's really important to remember is to take what aspects and the practices that make the most sense to you and seem to be most helpful, because not all of them will be. On a personal level, I've been doing some form of meditation for, for most of my life. And for me, I find that quite useful because it allows me to take a very different perspective when I'm under stressful situations. But other people might find other things uh, more helpful. And the, the invitation here is to be aware of those things that help you be more attentive and present and compassionate, and to try to cultivate those activities of your, within yourself, regardless of what they are. Exactly. I think that was very beautifully put. And thank you for sharing your personal experience with it as well. You know, that being said, how do you feel that uh, being more mindful in your experience and in general with all of your research and, and your book, how do you feel like that has changed the impact on patient care and changed, for example, how your interaction with patients has gone? Uh, yeah, really good question. And, and I'll just tell you a little story. Okay, so when I was a medical student for the first 10 years of practice, or actually even longer, um, we recorded patients' notes using this antique instrument called a pen and, and, uh, and stuff that's, that, was, that used to be called paper. Uh, so <laughs> all notes were handwritten. I know it's kind of hard to believe this. In, <laughs> in paper charts that, and people who were chronically ill in and out of the hospital would have charts that if you stacked them up would be like uh, three or four feet high. So lots and lots of paper. So, but with the advent of the electronic health record, I had an experience. We, we changed to a new EHR system, and that was very visually demanding. And a patient of mine who I'd been taking care of for a long time, for, for more than 10 years, one day said, you know, Dr. Epstein, I, I really like you as a doctor because you're a really good listener. But ever since you got this new computer system, I kind of feel like you've been paying more attention to the screen than than to what I'm saying. And he said it very kindly, but it was kind of like someone just drove a spear through my heart. You know, it's kind of like, this is not the way I want to see myself as a physician, right? And so I just made an agreement with, my, with myself that for the first 90 seconds of every patient visit, I wouldn't turn on the computer. I wouldn't take notes. I would just be there presently listening deeply to what the patient was saying and ask them to elaborate, you know, tell me more. What was that like? You know, were you worried? just trying to understand the patient's experience, but not even give advice or, or even think about making a diagnosis in those first 90 seconds, just trying to understand the, the fullness and richness of that patient's experience. And so what I found was, first of all, I, I ended up, I, when I went home, I felt a lot happier. You know, I felt like I was doing the, the work that really mattered. I found that I didn't get home any later and probably got home a little bit earlier, even though I wasn't taking notes and typing on the computer at the same time. I think it's because I didn't have to ask the question more than once because, because I was actually listening to the answer. And I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to listen attentively and type at the same time. It's really hard to do. Uh, that yes. kind of multitasking, you think that you're paying attention, but you're really not. You're missing things. And and found that my patients seemed happier. And, and, you know, then I learned a few other tricks, like you can turn the computer screen so you both look at it at the same time, and that's helpful. But, but I still like to maintain that practice of 90 seconds for the patient. And for me, that, that act of just listening deeply, of being there fully for that patient and with that patient, that for me is mindfulness in practice. 
90 seconds is, doesn't sound like a lot, but if you just kind of sit quietly and watch 90 seconds elapse on your clock, it's actually a substantial amount of time. You know, most patients complete uh, their description of why they came, why they came into the office, what's concerning them the most within that time. You know, we will always think about the exceptions, but, but the vast majority, 90 seconds is plenty of time. So it really accomplished the, the multiple goals of being a better listener, seeing each patient as an individual as opposed to just a member of a group, you know, so that, so that, so each one seemed like more of a unique person with a unique problem. Uh, it, it helped me get the whole picture before I jumped to conclusions, right? So it's so easy. Someone says, you know, I was running outside, it was cold, and I felt short of breath. And short enough, sure enough, you, you've got your differential diagnosis in your head. You know, it's likely exercise and cold-induced asthma or, you know, something like that. But if you just kind of put that aside for a moment and, and listen to the rest of the story, you know, you might find out that the patient also got a new pet you know, or, or something. You know, you, there might be something of, of diagnostic value before your mind shuts like a steel trap, not allowing further information. So that kind of openness, that receptivity uh, is really important. And also, I think it um, there, there's some good literature that seems to correlate increases in mindfulness with a reduction in, in implicit bias, or at least the expression of implicit bias, so that people who do some form of mindfulness training seem to exhibit less racial and gender body habitus, religion, you know, a bias based on, on those demographic factors. And, you know, it's, it's understandable because when you see people as individuals, when you connect better with patients as individuals, those things that might otherwise have been perceived as differences begin to fade away. Uh, it's what we call individuation. So, you know, I think that for me, it's, it's been helpful, you know, that adopting those attitudes of mindfulness were easier in patient care settings than, for example, administrative meetings, for example, which often are more contentious. And um, that, that for me presented a little more of a challenge. But I, I would suggest trying it, just finding one practice, one thing that you think you can do during patient care that you think will help you be more attentive, curious, present, more beginner's mind, and compassionate. And just try, try practicing that every day and something small, you know, the 90 seconds for a patient or taking a pause. You mentioned, where are my feet? Just paying attention to your feet to bring your awareness to your body because your body reflects your mental state sometimes more accurately than your thoughts do, right? Your thoughts, you can rationalize things, but your body sends you messages a lot sooner than that. So anyway, I guess just to conclude there, this is actually evidence-based. There are studies of mindfulness programs that correlate with improved patients' ratings of the interpersonal aspects of care. You know, do they trust the doctor? Do they feel the doctor understands them as a person? Those kinds of things. You made a lot of great points. I'm not even sure which one to talk about first, but I think two that I definitely want to hit on are the first one um, is about the bias that you mentioned. And that's uh, something that even sometimes I find myself guilty of, and uh, not just in terms of the race or or religion or things like that, but also um, something that you mentioned in your book was about how we sometimes subconsciously get biased when we have patients who might be responsible for their own diagnoses. Um, for example, if it's the, the fault of their diet or whatever it might be versus patients who don't have any hand in their diagnosis, which I feel 
you know, it's it's crazy because it's something that I've definitely been uh, responsible responsible of doing, and I, I wish to stop doing that. And I didn't even realize I was making any sort of assumptions until I had read that sentence in that book because I realized how true that it might be. And and like you mentioned, the other biases as well. The mindfulness really helps to sort of get rid of those you know disparities that we might otherwise think of. Let me just amplify on that a little bit in in two ways. We do have those biases, okay? We as humans are tribal to some degree, and we see the world in terms of people who are like us and people who are not like us. The problem is if you're unaware of those biases and your actions are on the basis of them. But the awareness of the biases allow you to supervene them, that allows you to choose a more morally acceptable way of acting in the world. So it's the awareness. And it's my belief that that awareness of bias actually ultimately reduces the level of bias. But I think it's the awareness. And so it kind of brings me to a point of what do you do when you're feeling really uncomfortable in someone else's presence? And for whatever reason, and uh, and you mentioned blaming, for example, you know, the idea of blaming a patient. Uh, you know, I'll just ask you something. Um, it, it you know, have you, or, uh, you know, for, for if you're a listener to this, have you ever done anything in your life that wasn't in the best interest of your health? Right? I mean, yes, of course. <laughs> of course, right. <laughs> so then, you know, then you stop and think, well, okay. And, you know, you can even take that a few steps further. Did you know it wasn't good for you? Well, yeah, maybe. Uh, did you want to stop doing it or did you think it might not be a good idea? You know, you can kind of go down that rabbit hole, but nonetheless, it brings you to a state of common humanity where even though the motivation to inject amphetamines every day um, is not something that I would necessarily share with a patient, one thing I can share in terms of common humanity is that I, like everybody else in this world, have done things that have not been in the best interest uh, of, my, of my own health. I want to mention, um, you know, if if you if you like to read the the Annals of Eternal Medicine has this weekly uh, or monthly series written you know, of reflections, and there was one written in this month's Annals in December by an author named uh, Rana Odish, and she describes a situation where a patient who she's known very well comes into the office, rips off her mask, and says. I'm not going to wear this stupid thing anymore. This is all because of a money-making scheme. You know, she's obviously... So Rana is a critical care physician who herself actually was extremely ill in, a, in an intensive care unit, but more importantly, has been taking care of people who have been very ill with COVID and dying from COVID. And so here's this patient she's known for 10 years and immediately identifying herself with, if you will, the enemy, right? You know, people who don't want to be vaccinated, don't believe that COVID is real. And so Rana describes her sense of absolute rage, how furious she is with this person, not only for uh, endangering herself, but also endangering others. And this sense of despair at knowing that it's very difficult to change people's minds when they hold such fixed belief systems. But then she describes in this piece, it's just one page long, so I'd re recommend you read it. It's called... Um, uh, you never let go of the thread, and uh, where she it realizes she's facing a choice that whether she wants to hold on to this anger, if she wants to be this angry person with the patient, or if she wants to bring the better side of herself to this encounter, right? So she kind of has this reflective pause, 
where she can then say, yes, I'm angry. Yes, I'm furious. Yes, I'm feeling threatened because this person might be infected. And, uh, and, I, and yes, I feel offended. So Rana then, then, then takes a moment and says, um, from what I've seen, I'm going to wear this mask to protect myself and others around me. And how has this whole experience been for you? So she was initially furious and then was able to express how she became curious. So this kind of alchemy of going from furious to curious, I think, is, is part of overcoming the disconnects and divisions and conflicts that we have patients who are not like us in any of a number of ways. I found the article really a fabulous example of what it really means to be mindful in clinical practice. That's a great article. I'll be sure to check it out. Um, And like you said, it it must have taken a lot of strength for her to go from furious to curious. And I think especially, you know, with the pandemic, there's a lot of feelings involved with the pandemic, especially given everything that physicians had to go through. So that must have taken a lot for her to be like that and become mindful like that. And the second point that I actually wanted to bring up was about, you know, you mentioned how patients are affected by the physician's attitudes and mindfulness and their, you know, presence. Could you talk a little bit about how this affects the physicians themselves, what you have found in your practice and and everything else? Like how has this sort of impacted physicians and those in medical practice? I think, you know, when you think about being more mindful, you can think about three goals. Okay. One is to provide better patient care in a technical sense, to make better diagnoses, to be more attentive to things going awry in surgery, for example. I give a couple of examples in my book of uh, doctors who missed things that were later quite obvious, uh, seemed quite obvious. So that's the kind of quality of care in very traditional sense of you know, the kind of quality metrics that we all answer to. The second is, is the quality of the relationships that we form with our patients and colleagues. And I think the example of taking a pause or the example from uh, Rana Odish's article and, and the 90 seconds for a patient, the, you know, those things really will manifest in patients trusting you more of coming back when you think that they should come back, of actually filling the prescription that you write for them. Because as we know, uh, something like a quarter of prescriptions at the pharmacy never get picked up. I mean, and on and on. So, you know, the the three-legged stool, the first leg is is quality of care. The second is quality of caring or quality of relationships. And the third is is your own sense of flourishing or well-being. And I'm not talking about just the sense of euphoria that you might feel after you, you know, run a marathon or have a good workout at the gym or what you know whatever it is a vacation in in a sunny and sandy place that's not really what i'm talking about it's a sense of real fulfillment that you are living the life that is meaningful to you and there's no substitute for that you know it's 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 more than a vacation or a good meal or a nice party it's really this deep sense of connectedness not only with others but, but with your, your core values. And imagine that if you could, even if you had the hardest day you could imagine, okay, a really, really difficult day, things didn't go well. But imagine at the end of the day, feeling that you had done your best and you had been true to the things that are really important to you, that would still give you a sense of satisfaction. So I, 
I, I did primary care for 35 years or so and started doing palliative care in the last decade of my primary care practice. And now I just do palliative care. And if you think about it, in palliative care, well, most of our patients die, right? And they die pretty soon. So, so that part I can't really alter. That's, that's just the way that life is. But what I can alter is my own ability to assimilate and be present in those circumstances and make a positive difference. And so it's that, it's that intention and, and I guess fidelity to our own values and, and motivations for even going into medicine in the first place. That's absolutely true. And I feel like, you know, as much as we're doing it for the patients, we kind of owe it to ourselves in a way too. And could you talk about how this sort of prevents physician burnout or, or its relationship to physicians burnout? Uh, yeah, it, I think we not only owe it to ourselves to take care of ourselves, but we owe it to our patients, right? Because if you're burned out, your patients kind of know it, you know, it, you may not be making mistakes. You know, I think that it's remarkable how well we as health professionals continue to function and, and with a high quality of care, even when we're extremely distressed. It's not a lack of resilience, okay? And we're all incredibly, you know, if you you know, think if you were able to pass organic chemistry, then by definition, you're resilient. You know, it's like, but I mean, that, that, but the think about the training that we all go through, it's, it's, it's pretty rigorous. So I, I think that flourishing to some extent is an antidote to burnout. And if you feel that your life lacks all meaning, if you're just going through the motions, then that really erodes your soul. It really erodes your dignity, your values, and it ultimately erodes your will. You know, it just makes it so that you're not really willing to go the extra mile. You're not willing to step outside of the box. And, and I think that's really important uh, in, in the sense that that kind of generosity pays itself back in, you know, a hundredfold. So that if you don't have any the imagination to be able to step outside of yourself and see what this patient really needs, you're depriving yourself as well as, as, as well as the patient. Having said that, I think the fundamental things that need to change in order to fully address the burnout issue are institutional and systemic. That is, expecting clinicians, nurses, doctors, nurses, aides, even the transport people and the pharmacists, expecting all of us to work at 120% of our natural capacity. It's just, it's just not realistic. I remember I was really kind of angry when I was in the airport a few months ago, and I was informed that the flight was delayed. It was a morning flight because the last night's flight got in late, and the pilots are required to sleep a certain number of hours, and, and they needed to be there sleeping while I was waiting in the airport. And I thought, well, do I want a tired, grumpy pilot flying yeah. the airplane? Yeah. You know, so, but in medicine, we do that. You know, we allow uh, tired, grumpy doctors to continue to work. And the solution is not easy. But think about the work hour restrictions. You know, in, in the 1980s uh, or and even early part of the 90s, it was not uncommon for doctors, uh, for trainees to work 36 hours straight, have 12 hours off and do it again and again. So every other night call. And that changed radically. You, you know, we and and the system has not suffered for it. And so thinking about the way that our workday is structured, thinking about providing quiet places so that 
we can all finish our chart notes without being distracted. And the notes might be a little more accurate and we're not feel like we're battling noise, which is uh, emotionally exhausting. So, you know, and I'll, these are all things that, you know, a lot of corporate America has instituted. My son works for Google and he talks about just even the way their office, I mean, obviously he's working from home now, but in general, the way the offices are laid out to la- allow people to work at their best. There are places where teams can meet and where you can be by yourself and quiet places and active places. So just thinking about the work environment that we're in and the expectations. And then also, especially important is a sense of control. And as a medical student, you have very little control over your environment. I think that should change too. But but the kind of control of the environment that attending physicians once had more of has largely evaporated. So that is this environment in which we have a lot of responsibility and very, very little control. And that psychologists will tell you is a a prescription for learned helplessness and burnout and languishing and giving up. I think you, I think that's what we're seeing now. I mean, this was not a good situation before the pandemic, and the pandemic has put into sharp relief uh, all of those underlying problems in healthcare. And that's why we're finding that 18% of the healthcare workforce has quit in the past year. It's uh, that that turnover is quite dramatic, and so. One of the challenges is, you know, you know, if you're a medical student now, well, you'll be a resident, you'll be supervising somebody, you'll be in a leadership position. How do you, how will you as a leader make the environment, work, make the work environment just that much more conducive to being mindful, to being present, to being attentive than what you experience as a student? You know, how can you make it a little bit better in terms of creating a humane environment for that next group of students who you'll be supervising? And then when you're an attending physician, holding on to that and saying, you know, think about the attendings you had in medical school who may have been fabulous or not so fabulous, but how can you make the environment even better for that next cohort of students so they can really learn and be the person they want to be when they're with their, with their patients? So that's the challenge that we need to carry forward with us as we go through, uh, as we go through training. And one thing that I like to add um, from my own experience is that in school, unfortunately, we're not taught about you know mindfulness at all. And I know it's not a very science-based topic. I understand it's not medicine, but it's something that I feel in the position that I am now that would benefit me and all students very greatly. I'm doing interviews right now with um, for programs for residency, and very, very, very few institutions have establish some sort of mindfulness or humanities course or didactics type of meetings in their um, in their program. And it's really because I like to bring it up to them or they sometimes bring it up themselves. And it's not very common to discuss these kind of things. And, you know, the pandemic did sort of help a little bit with this. I feel at the hospital that I was rotating at, they sort of started to add some more didactics meetings that were not medicine based, but were actually more about wellness and, and resident wellness. And that was great. But I wish that this is something that more schools would also implement, even just you know a little bit. I want to insert a few things. One is, is that I think that mindfulness is scientifically based. There's actually a very large literature on the psychological benefits of meditation and, and other mindfulness practices, including in health professions. The, the second thing is that three quarters of medical schools in the U.S. actually do have some uh, mindfulness 
component, even if it is elective. That's something that's really changed over the past 20 years. And in my daughter's, my daughter's a fourth year medical student. In her medical school, the first week of medical school, half a day was devoted to mindfulness and how you might incorporate various techniques. They had no idea that she was my daughter uh, but uh, <laughs> when they signed the readings, but uh, because one of them was my was an article of mine. But nonetheless, so this is changing. And, and residency programs and medical schools, in order to be reaccredited, they have to have some kind of wellness program. Now, it may be good, it may be terrible, but it's something. And this is something that's totally new in the, in the last few years, even pre-pandemic. I'm actually hopeful for the future. And I think that being mindful is actually absolutely central to being a good doctor. It's not, it's not a side dish. It is the main course, okay? Because if you're not mindful, then you make more errors, you don't communicate well, and you tend to burn out and leave. Uh, and that's pretty well documented that those, those things are correlated. So I think it's really incumbent upon any aspiring physician to acquire some of those skills, whatever they look like for you in a way that's meaningful. And whether you're going to be a pathologist or a radiologist or a primary care doc or a surgeon, it doesn't matter. Mindfulness is really central. How you get there is maybe very personal, but mindfulness is really central to what we all do. Okay, great. One thing I wanted to, um, to build on also was you, know, you mentioned the, the skill of addressing uncomfortable feelings. And I think this is something that is, is one of the main barriers to being mindful. You know, you've, you're, you're afraid of making a mistake or you think you've made a mistake. So what's your first inclination? You kind of want to hide, right? You want to pre- prevent yourself from taking that in. You don't want to admit that even to yourself, much less to someone else. You know, what happens when you don't know something? What happens if you're feeling emotionally overwhelmed by a situation? You know, how do you deal with that kind of discomfort and welcome that discomfort in? Because we know that if you're curious about what's making you uncomfortable, then you can do something positive about it. So if it's, if it's you know, an error that you either almost made or made, then being aware of it allows you to examine it, to say what went wrong, how can I do differently in the future? And it also allows you to apply a certain amount of compassion and kindness to yourself, because especially in medicine, it's, it's a highly imperfect field. And the issue of not knowing, I mean, you know, I'll just ask a question, but the answer is obvious, a rhetorical question. Is it better to not know something and not know that you don't know it? Or is it better to not know something and know that you don't know it? And of course, it's the latter, because then you can figure out what you need to do to get to where you go. So I think one other skill that we try to emphasize when helping people become more aware and mindful is, is a, a skill of self-compassion. I'm not saying, no, the error was okay, or, but you, know, you could say, well, it shouldn't have happened. You know, maybe it, it, it's something that was not the best practice. But to say, okay, uh, I know that if I'm kind to myself and nurture myself in a certain way, I'll have more motivation to learn than if I try to punish myself or deny that that the error happened. or So sometimes responding with a positive emotion to a negative or stressful experience can be more transformative than, than a more punitive response. Right. It's okay to not know. And I think we have to be comfortable with that. It's sort of, it feels like unfamiliar territory because as physicians, you know, we should know everything or I guess it's not, that's not true though. Um, it's impossible. No one does. Exactly. Some pretend more than others, but no yep. one does. 
there's just one more topic that I'd like to discuss with you before we end the show here. And it has to do with intuition and how, for example, you had a story about, not a story, I'm sorry, like you had a recollection about having intuition about a certain case, uh, but not being able to speak up on it because of an intimidating resident while you were a medical student. So how do you feel that students and people in the, you know, the lower part of the hierarchy should react to these intuitions that they might have in medicine? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really, really good question. And, you know, intuition is always informed by experience and knowledge, you know, or, and if you don't have a lot of experience and don't have a lot of knowledge, your intuitions may be entirely correct, but they could also more easily also be off base. So it's really hard to say, just because I'm intuiting this, that means it's correct. So one thing to do, and I, th- I think that's probably true for all of us, is recognizing the earliest signs that you have some discomfort with what's going on, you know, and say, I'm uncomfortable. Okay. I don't know why I'm uncomfortable, but something doesn't seem quite right. And for me, I often get that clue when I dream about patients. You know, I don't usually dream about patients, but if they kind of enter my dream life, I think, well, something must be going on. I don't know what that something is, but it means I need to take a closer look. So an internal basis, that may just be a trigger for you to say, okay, I'm going to take a closer look at the situation. What questions do I have? What is it exactly that's making me feel uncomfortable? The next issue is timing. Okay, if there's nothing urgent, you know, if you notice someone's IV has become disconnected and no one else notices it, that's urgent, right? You notice blood's coming out of the, you know, you say, you know, take a look at this IV. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of a speaking up thing that you need to do. But if it's more subtle than that, you need, I think timing is important. Find a quiet moment and then phrase it as a question. You know, uh, I, I'm noticing there's a lump here. Uh, you know, is, is that something that's normal? You know, just to direct your attending's attention or your the resident's attention to something that you, you know, and I'm noticing is, is kind of something that is less threatening than, you know, won't you please pay attention to that lump, you know, right? Yeah. Or you can say, Gee, you know, the patient told me earlier and I'm not sure I understood correctly that he's had, you know, whatever in the past, or, you know, your resident's about to prescribe a, a penicillin derivative. And, you know, you say, well, I noticed in the chart didn't say penicillin allergy, but when I asked about allergies earlier, the patient said they were allergic to penicillin. Should we be, should we be worried? So even if you feel like you know the answer, uh, phrasing it as a question, and if you really feel that something wrong is going on, uh, that something that just isn't right, either on the interpersonal level or on a technical level, that's the time to uh, speak to your advisor or someone else in a position of authority in in the hierarchy. And again, nowadays, those people really have to be neutral. Uh, And medical schools, at least in the US, there needs to be some way where some advising system where students can talk about their concerns and not be penalized for having done so. Uh, but you should really know who that person is, or if you have an advisor or a mentor who you feel safe with. But uh, I don't want to minimize the vulnerability that anyone would feel, you know, when these guys, when these attendings are grading you that, you know, might influence your future in a big way. You don't want to be, uh, seem confrontational. But also asking a question, you know, I'm not sure really one, I really don't quite understand why you did that or why you prescribe that medication. Would you mind, could you explain that to me? And so everyone in medical school is going to find a morally distressing moment. And maybe thinking in advance, 
who are the people that you would want to speak to about that? Uh, I know I had several, and I imagine each of you will have had several of those kinds of moments. Yes, absolutely. I think that's all we have for today. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, I know you've you've got some really good questions and and points, and I, I'm I'm hoping that I was able to shed some light on them. Yes, you were. Thank you so much. This was so informative and so helpful, and I hope our listeners feel so as well. Thank you again for speaking for our podcast. We appreciate it to all our listeners out there. We hope that you have a great holiday season and stay safe. Take care. Thank you.